Hi, y'all. So today's episode is going to be a little random. We're going to talk about numbers running in Harlem, which, while this is a subject that's important to talk about, simply because only talking about kind of like the polished middle class life of black people in history misses a lot. I actually want to talk about it because of one of my favorite movies of all time, The Wiz. Now, I've watched that movie truly a ridiculous number of times since I was very little, and it wasn't until pretty recently that I realized that one of the characters, Miss One, is a numbers runner. Now, Miss One, with her sparkly blue dress and actual foam numbers coming out of her afro, represents a real part of history, because before the government took over the lottery in America, illegal forms of gambling, such as numbers running, were how people gambled in America. And in neighborhoods like Harlem, black people preferred to play and pay other black people, which means that the whole industry from the players to the bankers on top consisted of black Americans. So Miss One is significant in her depiction of a numbers runner, specifically in a fictionalized version of Harlem, and also because she's a woman. Though women were more heavily stigmatized when they participated in the numbers racket, there were women participants from top to bottom in this industry that was generally perceived as masculine. Which brings me to this episode's guest. Today I'm talking to Professor LaShawn Harris of Michigan State University about her book, Sex Workers, Psychics, and Numbers Runners. Black women in New York City's underground economy. We're going to use Miss One to focus on the real characters of Harlem's numbers racket because there's plenty to talk about there, even though the poison poppy scene in The Wiz is definitely about sex workers. But anyway, before we get into women specifically in numbers running in Harlem, I just want to set the scene because there were networks of illegal gambling around the world, but Harlem's had a very unique flavor. So let's focus in on Harlem's world of numbers. Harlem's numbers racket was an illegal form of lottery where a player picked a set of three-digit numbers between 000 and 999, and winning numbers were typically drawn from the New York Stock Exchange. The functioning of Harlem's numbers game depended on the labor of several different people. On top and running the show was the mysterious banker. I say mysterious because people often knew of the banker, but there was no relationship beyond that. Numbers bankers usually finance his or her numbers operation. They staff the numbers headquarters with a group of collectors and clerks and numbers runners. Numbers runners were usually average people who just made an effort to come into contact with a lot of people every day because it was their job to get number slips and bets from players back to the main headquarters and sometimes to get prize money from headquarters back to players for up to between 20 and $30 a day just collecting numbers. So numbers runners would go to people's houses and any public place they figured they could find people and collect slips from them. Places like barbershops and beauty salons and not always discreetly. Commenting on the manner in which like some runners conducted their labor, a black newspaper in particular noted that, and this is a direct quote, runners, quote unquote, employed by the bankers are on a regular schedule each morning picking up their collections, and there is nothing clandestine or hidden about the way they move. They boldly and openly along picking up slips of money from players on the streets, and sometimes are being handled an envelope with money in slips, end quote. But at the same time, many numbers runners, particularly those who are aware, obviously, that the game is illegal and its negative reputation amongst some Black New Yorkers, 
really concealed what they were doing. So in other words, sometimes they wouldn't collect on the streets. So you had people who were collecting on the streets and then you had those who were like, you know what, the cops might be out here. I'm going to kind of collect and maybe among Black people who own their own businesses or maybe I'll go to their homes, but not like in a public space because they could possibly get arrested. The way that you just described numbers runners being openly in and around the community and wherever Black people were congregated gets into the way that you described the numbers game as a community game. It could be seen as that. So it was a cultural pastime. It was a community game. Many people who played or observed didn't think that this was such a bad thing necessarily. But those folks who were kind of invested in projects of racial uplift and respectability believed that Black people should not play the game because it kind of breached or departed from like tendons of racial uplift. So if you are a working class or a poor person, they believe that you shouldn't spend your money on gambling. Like there's no way you can win. The game is rigged against you. Why are you wasting your money on playing a game that's rigged. You need to save your money. You need to buy clothes or have money for public transportation or money for renting your space. Don't waste your money on this game. So there were folks who were against it. But for the most part, I would probably say that many people thought the game was harmless. And they may think that because folks are playing it. And a lot of folks at one particular time weren't getting arrested now, when you see different like white racketeers moving into the gambling racket, it becomes a different sort of game for many people. It becomes a dangerous game for some people. But it does become this kind of community pastime where you have the opportunity to not only engage in a labor practice, but also a leisure practice. So it's like work and play at the same time. You can go and get your hair done. And then you play the number or you can own a beauty shop and on the side be a collector, right? So it gives you the opportunity to kind of engage in different types of work, but also engage in different types of leisure at the same time. Yeah, it's the lottery. Chances of winning are always really, really slim. But when people did win, that money meant a lot and it could do a lot. It could be rigged. There are some shady bankers who didn't always pay their winners at the same time. There were some bankers who didn't go by the New York Stock Exchange and they selected their own lucky numbers, which within itself could be a possible scam if you are collecting money from people and then you get to decide what the number is. And you're like, you know what? No one's ever going to win, but I'm still going to keep running this game. This is why some working and middle-class Blacks were against it. So it could possibly be rigged. And there were plenty of times, I think Adam Clayton Powell Jr. in his autobiography talks about playing the numbers sometime in the 40s or 50s and getting duped. He hit the number and he wasn't paid. So that happens too, especially if a lot of people hit at the same time. A lot of folks hit at the same time how can a banker pay all of those people? That doesn't always happen, but that could possibly 
happen. But if you do win and you are working class, working poor, particularly during the late 1920s or the 1930s, the era of the Great Depression, that was huge. Like you said, you could pay your rent up, which may be late. You could pay utility bills. You have money for public transportation. You have money for your children's clothing. You may have money to take in a movie or or something, but it meant a lot. At the same time, if you hit big, that money could be reinvested back into the African-American community or Black Harlem. You could be donating money to the NAACP or Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association or any charitable organization of your choosing. Your church, to this day, every church has a building fund, right? So that money could be reinvested back into not just your own home, but also the community itself. And this is not to suggest that Black people are just saying, oh, you know, I hit the number, I'm going to give to all of these organizations. But it's a possibility that they could. Remember, like, some of those activities that we see that the Urban League is participating in, like their official publication, Opportune Magazine, had literary contests and different Harlem Renaissance writers participated They submitted their essays and novels and poems or whatever to their literary contests. A lot of those contests, quite a few of them, were financed by numbers bankers in Harlem, particularly someone like a Casper Holstein. So it's a way for you to reinvest. Now, some of the women that I look at don't necessarily do that, but it's a possibility for people. It's another economic possibility. You just talked about community reinvestment as a pretty important part of the numbers game in Harlem. And that's a good bridge into the main numbers runner that you talk about, a numbers queen. Her name is Stephanie St. Clair. And her reign as a numbers queen is incredibly interesting. I'm really excited to talk about her. But we should definitely start at the beginning. Stephanie St. Clair is one of many queens, if you will, in New York. There are many women who participated in the numbers record. There are many Black women bankers. Stephanie Sinclair is the most prominent because she dominates the Black press and the white press within New York and also outside of New York. That's why so many people know her. No one really, at least in my opinion, eclipsed her notoriety because she's just everywhere. She her picture, her story, who she is, her run-ins with police, her, you know, kind of sordid love affairs are featured in like the New York Amsterdam News, the Philadelphia Courier, outside of Black newspapers. She's in the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times. Like she's just everywhere. So what do we know about Stephanie Sinclair? She is one of a few African-American and Caribbean immigrants and Latinx folks that dominates the numbers racket during the 20s and early 30s. So she's from Guadalupe. She's born in about 1880 or 1890, and she dies December of 1969 during the Black Power era. She immigrates to America by way of Canada in 1912, and there aren't a whole lot of details from then until about the mid-20s when she starts to make a name for herself in the numbers game, but that's when things get interesting. The story is she is able to establish her own bank because of a lawsuit. So prior to her getting in, she was probably a seamstress or a domestic worker like many Black women and like many Caribbean immigrants at that time. And she was late with her rent. 
and her landlady and the city marshal put her stuff out on the street and people came. It was just like taking stuff. And she sued them and won about, I think, a thousand dollars. The legend is she used that money to start her numbers bank. So a thousand dollars in about 1923 is probably over fifteen thousand dollars today. So that's a lot of money. So she starts her empire. And by the 1930s, according to various Black newspapers, this might be speculation because who really knows? But they said that she was making like $200,000 a year, like a lot of money. I mean, the newspapers could have exaggerated, but more than one newspaper said this. So she's very wealthy. She's on par in terms of wealth. Someone like Madam C.J. Walker, who I believe is dead by that time. She's a rich woman. She has furs, jewelry, colorful turbans. She lives in the famous 409 Edgecombe building, which is in Harlem and Sugar Hill. This is where folks like Walter White lived of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois of the NAACP, like prominent, respectable people lived in this like really exclusive building. And she doesn't care if people know she's a numbers banker. She's in this building with all of these highly educated, respected folks. And she's just like, yeah, I run Harlem's numbers racket. I'm one of several Black kings and queens. And she's just really unapologetic about who she is, her physical style, what she does for a living. And she is someone who is able to, in some respects, successfully navigate a very rigid terrain of Jim Crow North, race, gender, and class segregation in New York. It's not like the South, but it's still there. And she does that by using the underground economy. And most importantly, she reimagines herself differently from how whites expect Black women to carry themselves. She's not about any of that. She's not about deference to any man, let alone a white man. And she thinks it's important for Black people to participate in the numbers racket and only participate with Black bankers. That's important for her. Like, you know, if you're going to play, play Black. Don't go to white people. Don't let them dominate the numbers racket. She sees white control over the numbers racket as an extension of white supremacy. I wouldn't call her a race activist, but she's definitely a race advocate And she's genuinely concerned about the plight of Black New Yorkers. And she's felt the sting and brush of white supremacy and racism and sexism. But at the same time, she is also someone who is about herself, too. She's a hero, but she's also an anti-hero. She wants you to play Black, but she's also thinking about if people play Black, then they're going to play with me and the other Black folks. So she's also about her money. Ooh, one of the most interesting parts of her story that you talk about is she has like a full-on fight with a white numbers runner who's trying to move into Harlem. Like no one else is really standing up against Dutch Schultz. So she's like going to his businesses and scaring people out of the neighborhood because that is one of the big tenets of Harlem's number game is independence from white oversight and white control. So she takes that into her own hands. So Dutch Schultz, whose real name is Arthur Fleckenheimer, posed the greatest threat to Sinclair. 
he's one of New York's and the nation's most ruthless bootleggers and criminals. In about 1935, the FBI director J. Edgar Hoover referred to Schultz as public enemy number one. Stephanie Sinclair joined Black New Yorkers like individual as well as collective resistance against Schultz and other white racketeers who desired to really control Harlem's lucrative numbers racket. So in the 1960 article, when she was, I mean, really elderly woman, she did an interview with the New York Post, and this is a direct quote. She claimed that she was the only, quote unquote, Negro banker to fight Schultz off, end quote. And then she criticized Black bankers for being intimidated by white racketeers like Schultz. So she says to this reporter, quote unquote, I fought Schultz from 1931 to 1935, and it cost me a total of 820 days in jail and three quarters of a million dollars. Then she says this about Schultz, and this is the 1960s, but she says, I was never afraid of Schultz or any living man. And then in the 30s, she says, quote unquote, he'll never touch me. I will kill him if he sets foot in Harlem. He's a rat. The numbers game is mine. He took it away from me and is swindling the color people. I'm the only one after him, end quote. So she's not the only one after Schultz. There are many people who are going after him, but this kind of speaks to how she sees herself, right? But yeah, she, with different white racketeers, including Schultz, she was known to go into their numbers drops, uh, which could have been newsstands, jewelry stores. And she would literally go in, probably with her bodyguards. I mean, she's not going in there by herself. Let's be real. She's not going in there by herself. But she probably went with her crew of bodyguards, throwing stuff around, smashing during the jewelry store, like glass cases and telling them, like, don't collect numbers there. So she mounted a verbal assault and she also mounted a somewhat physical fight with him. While this shows a very brave and bold woman, there's also a lot of fear and vulnerability involved in her fight. She's a Black woman in a very masculine space. She's very little legal or political power, being a Black woman and a criminal. While at the same time, Schultz has connections to all sorts of dangerous people, so much so that he puts a hit out on her and she's put on the run, which she describes this way. She says, quote unquote, I was running for my life and even had to hide in a cellar while the super, a friend of mine, covered me with coals, end quote. So again, even though she's doing all of these things, she's bringing this kind of public fight in the press and in person, she's also very, very scared. If you're not scared, who runs and hides? She's such a layered person, like showing this vulnerability side, but also showing a side that's very fierce and protective of an empire that has taken her years to build. She's just not going to give it up to somebody, let alone a white man. But she's very scared. And I don't talk about this as much. And it's not a lot of evidence that I've found yet. But there's also competition from Black male bankers who believe that Black women shouldn't be in this masculine space, too. The attacks, the challenges are not just coming from white men. They're also coming from anybody who's in that business. And that business is dominated by men. Ooh, another one of the dangers that she faced was because numbers running was illegal. Part of it was paying off the police to keep them away. And after her first arrest and being put in jail, one of her missions was to illuminate police corruption and vice and its ties to the numbers gang. Yeah, she definitely... When she gets out, she goes into jail December of 1929, comes out sometime in 1930. And she comes out 
with a vengeance because, like you said, she had paid off police not to arrest her or her runners. The thing about what separates her from white bankers is that white bankers have this political clout. They have political connections too, right? Whereas Black bankers didn't necessarily have those political ties, those political connections to local New York City politics. And that protected those people. They were isolated from the cops in many ways. And St. Clair doesn't have that because she's paying them and she still gets arrested. And she is determined to expose the hypocrisy of policing, to expose that these people are arresting me, but they are also participants in the game and they're being paid not to do these things. This is where you see her taking out these newspaper ads and she uses the Black press, particularly the New York Amsterdam News, to say, this is what's happening. And not that Black people didn't know They did know that this was happening. They see cops in their neighborhoods every single day. They know that many of them are corrupt. But she is determined to expose how she was played by them. In the 1930s, she testifies before the Samuel Siebert Committee or Investigation, which was a commission that investigated corruption in the city, particularly in the courts, as well as the NYPD. And they interview a lot of folks, over a thousand interviewees, including former sex workers, numbers bankers, runners, just a, stool pigeons, a whole bunch of people. St. Clair is one of many, and she goes and she tells what she knows, and she exposes herself again as a banker. While she's ready to expose cops and city officials for corruption, she's also willing to expose who she is. Like, she's not afraid to say, I'm just going to fall on my own sword. But the bigger goal here is to show the hypocrisy within the police and the disparity of arrest, too. Cops are arresting African-Americans at a much greater number for numbers running compared to the white numbers runners. So, yeah, she's definitely on a mission And one thing that comes to mind with her while she's doing this, it's not clear to me if she's still even a formidable numbers banker at that particular time. Because when she goes to jail, like who operates her business? But she's definitely determined to expose cops for participation in a numbers game, for illegal home searches in Black people's homes, police brutality, particularly against Black women, So she's doing all of these different things that Black activists of New York had been doing. So she's one of, again, many people who's doing this type of work. I mean, the only difference is that it's coming from the lips of a really kind of colorful figure that some people take seriously and some don't. In your book, you kind of compare her campaign against the police to the clubwoman movement at the same time that was also for community improvement. She's not an activist. She's an advocate. And she's an advocate because she's not isolated from what's happening in Black New York. She's experienced race, gender, and class discrimination. And I think that she sees that even though this is an illegal business, that business is entangled in all of those different types of oppression, right? So I think for her, It's about joining that cohort of Black people who are elevating their voices to talk about different issues within their communities. She also understands that she has the ear of the Black press, too. So in many ways, she uses her platform as this kind of prominent banker, as a race advocate. 
But at the same time, this is also a person who is about themselves and who loves the media. She loves attention, right? So this is also a way for her to keep her name and her face in the spotlight too. It's a sort of win-win because people are talking about her. As long as people are talking about her, that's all that matters sometimes for her, I think. So I say this to say she's definitely a race advocate, but she's also someone who loves the media attention. She's placing ads in the newspapers. She's sending letters to the media that don't make it into the newspapers. Yeah, Stephanie St. Clair is super cool. I think I want to take a step back. Her book is about Black women in like Harlem's informal economy. As we take the step back, I just want to ask, why were Black women attracted to the informal economy or money-making and exchanging goods and services outside of official legal channels? Like unlicensed vendoring, moonlighting. It could be like fencing and selling stolen goods and counterfeit merchandise. It could be laboring for organized criminal syndicates. So in pursuit of financial stability, wealth, employment mobility, and the opportunity to participate in uninhibited social pleasures that stimulated a living wage was attractive to many women as long as they could evade laws. So the women who participate, at least the women that I look at in my study, they were single, they were married, they were widowed. Many were working class. There were some middle-class women, some educated women, some who considered themselves to be religious. Some of them used, quote-unquote, unrespectable means or labor to support the respectable. So they're, they may be using that money to take care of like bills, sick kids, sending kids off to school, like college, taking care of their parents. They're using the money for church donations, donation to race reform agencies such as the NAACP. Others may be using money like Stephanie Sinclair to not just economically survive, but economically thrive and even build wealth. Some women are getting into the informal economy because they want to take part in urban leisures, different types of social activities. It's not only about women who are cash-strapped. It's about women who really imagine a different sort of life for themselves within the context of leisure sometimes, and even within the context of labor mobility. Another draw into the informal economy for Black women was that it wasn't domestic work. And we've talked about in the show before the fact that domestic workers, especially at this time in the 20s and 30s and even 40s and 50s, domestic workers had no protections. They had no minimum wage or maximum hours they could work a week. They didn't even have contracts with employers, which meant that when they were hired, their employer could insist on as much work as they wanted for as little as they were willing to pay. Not to say that the informal economy had protections, but it did offer somewhat more autonomy and a slight expansion to a very limited job market for Black women. It depends on the market. So if you are a runner, you have some autonomy in terms of how you collect your hours of work, but you still have to answer to a boss because you're not the entrepreneur, right? And let's not forget that the informal economy is just not illicit or illegal labor. Informal economy could also be Black women doing hair in their house, Black women selling dinners in their house, right? So oftentimes we think about the informal economy, we think the illicit or the illegal, but it could simply be street vendors, like Black women who are out on the street selling food, right? 
So with those types of women, you see more of that labor autonomy because they answer to nobody. And this is not to suggest that the informal economy is just some like great working space or, you know, there are challenges within that. You could be subject to arrests, violence, family shame, community shame, race, gender, and class discrimination, intense and continued state surveillance by the police, and competition from competing underground laborers, too. There are even some Black women who knowingly take these risks in being domestic workers to criminal organizations in pursuit of slightly better conditions and pay. But there are some other draws into the informal economy, too. But they go into the informal economy for a host of reasons. I mean, I found working in middle class, educated women who attended Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is was and still is a prominent black church in Harlem, who were numbers runners. So they're not going because they need the money. They're middle class women. But they're going into it for personal reasons, tired of the everyday life of what middle class lifestyle brings. I think the biggest misconception is that when you think about informal work, you just think about, you know, people who just have to do this type of work. And I think that's some people's story. There's a lot of people's story, but it's not everybody's entrance point into that labor market. There's a part in like your introduction where you talk about that histories like this aren't often told because they're not necessarily like favorable, but this is a history that needs to be told. In the past, at least when I was a graduate student, and even as an undergrad, in my history classes and the things that I read, this wasn't being taught to me. But in terms of historians, I think that because Black history, as the great late Manny Marble says, you know, Black history is kind of corrective. We are correcting a historical record mostly by whites that have suggested that Black people don't have a history or that they are bystanders who watch history happen. So in that vein, I think that many historians, and rightfully so, focus on resurrecting a type of past that really showed the beauty and the struggle of Black people, but also the achievements, the great and wonderful achievements of Black people. And oftentimes looked at our history from kind of top-down perspective, middle-class elite Blacks, those who were on the front lines of confronting the race problem. So there was very little room, I think, for working class people, poor people, domestic workers, a fuller image of Black history, Black people in their full humanity, that they can be all of these different things. They can be, quote unquote, the good. They could be bad. They could, you know, they, they could be all of these different things. And at the same time, I'm from New York City. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, this is part of like my own personal world, too, as a New Yorker. I saw this every day growing up. I'd step outside, you know, in the 80s, people trying to sell my mom fake Cabbage Patch dolls or socks or, you know, or Lucy cigarettes or, or whatever. So this is just part of growing up as a city kid. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. Thank you for having me. And thank you for indulging my love of the whiz so that we could look at Black history from the underground. As always, if you like my show, spread the word about it and make sure you're following it in whatever podcasting app you're using so that you get notifications about new episodes. All power, all people, y'all.